Good morning, everybody. How are you all going? Hope you're going good. Excellent. I'm just going to give everybody just a minute or, or two just to roll in. People are still coming on. So just a minute or two and then we're going to kick off. Okay, I think we can get underway now. So thanks everybody for joining us today. Great to see you all joining us today and taking time out of your day. I'm sure you're all busy executing contracts, finalizing negotiation, procurements. It's, it's always fun doing procurement. So <clears throat> the last event that we had on LinkedIn, that was about two or three weeks ago, it got really lots of tractions from people that attended or watched this, the, the session. Lots of insights that we've got from people, lots of great and tons of great feedback. I've got got so many people reaching out to me offline, talking to me about the, the presentation and the approach. <clears throat> Sorry. And, and some questions also we've received offline. So I thought would be really logical next step to just have this session to follow up on that approach that we talked about last time and have a little bit in-depth conversation about the the process and allow more of a Q&A because we didn't have time really to have more interaction with the attendees at that time. So that's really the intent of today is to really allow people to have more in-depth conversation and ask us a lot of questions. So before we start, I just wanted to introduce you to John Saviki. John joining us from Simplar in the US. John, it's 6 p.m. now, your time. Yes, that's good. So John is the Director of Sourcing and Research at the Simplar Institute, which is like the big part of, of Simplar Australia here. John has been, has been one of the lead researchers on the approach that started like 25 years now. So we've got like tons of experience. I've seen a lot. So I thought that we we can have his his views and his input in today's session that would be also valuable. So just a, a couple of announcements before we kick in. We do also run and host a podcast called the RFP Secrets Podcast. Maybe I'll put a link to that podcast. We've been doing some episodes and that podcast is solely focusing on the RFP or the tender process, nothing more about the wider procurement activities, but really focusing on that critical aspect or part of the procurement process and how can organizations and vendor really optimize their ability to have a more successful tenders and RFPs processes. So yeah, I would highly encourage you to check this out. Um, we have lots of questions and, and, and answers that we'll be talking about on this podcast episodes. So yeah, I highly encourage you to check this out. The other thing I wanted to call out is <clears throat> our plan is to have like, this is like a, like a fortnightly events for people to, to come and join us live and have that conversation. And every fortnight or every event will have a different topic that we're going to be also talking about the RFP or the tender process but different topics, we're gonna dissect different aspects or different parts of the process. There's lots of things to be discussed, evaluation criteria, evaluation scores, scope of work, lots of things that we need to discuss and, and, and have think about what we're currently doing and figure out if there's any better ways to undertake what we're currently doing. The final thing 
I'm going to just call out is we have the Q&A. There's a Q&A button on the top. So if you have a question, you can ask the question in writing anonymously. But we also <clears throat> going to invite people to come live and, and ask us the question themselves. We will prioritize those who ask questions and willing to come and, and ask that question live because we see a lot of the great value coming out of this conversation that we have back and forth between attendees. Otherwise, we're going to go through all the questions that we've got. So I would like to start by <clears throat> just checking in with the attendees here. Who here have attended the live event or watched that session? So I'm just going to put something on the screen. And if you can just let me know if you click on that quick poll. So just can get some understanding about how much information do you know about the process and the approach. Okay, so I'm going to close this now. All right, so we've got lots of people that haven't heard about this approach. So that's also what I thought. So what we're going to start with now, I'm going to ask John to give us a quick recap of that RFP process or the, the XPD or best value procurement process and explain some of the high levels that we spoke about in the last session. And then we can uh, talk specifically about two items that I have here on note, and then we can open up for the Q&A. If you have any questions throughout the, the, the session, just feel free to just drop them there, or you can also raise your hand if you want to comment or ask a question as we go. So John, with that, I will just hand it over to you to just give us a quick. Thank you, John and John. If while I'm presenting, John, if someone has a question or, you know, someone has a comment, feel free to just interrupt me and stop me because I won't be able to watch the comments here. Sure. Okay, so let me share my screen. Okay, do you see the PowerPoint now? Yeah, okay. Thank you, good morning. Thanks for everyone for your time. As John kind of outlined, what I'll do is just, you know, maybe spend 10, 15 minutes walking through the best value approach and some techniques that we've learned over the last 20 years and in, in how to attract high performing suppliers. The one thing I, I think that makes us a little bit different than most researchers um, in the industry is that we haven't just worked with owners in terms of helping owners implement new RFP techniques. We also work with suppliers in helping them respond to owner RFPs. That's really important to understand because the ability to understand what your suppliers are going through can, can really help you become a more attractive client. And I'll try to highlight that in the next 10 minutes or so. You know, this picture summarizes just about everything you've ever dealt with when you've had a project go wrong. You know, when do you find out that you hired the wrong, the wrong vendor? You know, when it's too late. How much pain is it? A lot of pain. How much does it cost to fix it? A lot of money. How long are you going to be stuck with that project? You know, forever. So hiring the wrong vendor has a lot of pain. And so the intent of, you know, the RFP process is not just to attract vendors or suppliers, but it's, it's to attract the high performing or high quality suppliers that really know how to do the work. So I'll walk through a couple and I, I call it wisdoms. These are things I've learned in terms of working with suppliers in, in how they respond to RFPs or even if they respond. The first thing to understand is that your perception about yourself as a client is meaningless. The only thing that matters is the supplier perception of you. So if they think basically you're just a predator in disguise, you know, you can't change that by just saying, you know, you're a good client, trust me, right? So 
you know, if you don't know what suppliers think of you, you know, that's the first thing I recommend is doing a quick assessment to determine what their true perceptions are, because it may not align with what your perceptions are of yourself. Next thing to understand, high quality vendors aren't just sitting around waiting for you to issue an RFP. And this is important because sometimes as owners, we spend, you know, three, four or five months putting together our RFPs and, and we're in the weeds that once we release it, we forget that in many cases, there's five, 10, 15 other projects on the street that are similar to yours, other clients, and the suppliers are busy either responding to those projects, working on some of those projects. And so you're not the only RFP that's, that's out there. And that ties into my next few slides. So suppliers have options. They're looking at all the different owners and all the different projects, and they're trying to identify which project they're going to go after, which RFP they're going to propose on, which, which project they're going to send their A-team on. So the goal of what, you know, John and, and Simplar is trying to get across to, to clients is that you want to try and look as, as attractive to your suppliers as possible. And you, what you want is you want your other competitors, and that's when I say competitors, that's other clients, right? That's your neighbors. You want them to look scary. So the goal is how do we look more attractive? Because if we can look more attractive, we're not only going to get more proposals, but we're going to get higher quality responses. Next thing to understand is, and, and sometimes as clients, we know that proposals cost money, but sometimes we don't realize how much money it can cost. I mean, it's frequently thousands of dollars that it costs suppliers to propose. So when they're looking at your solicitation or RFP, they have to make a decision whether they wanna chase your proposal or skip it. And, and the questions they ask, we'll dive into here. So once again, what we're trying to do is out of all the opportunities that suppliers have, we want your solicitation to look more attractive than everyone else because suppliers then are more likely to propose and propose with higher quality team on your solicitation. Okay, so what are the major questions that supplier asks themselves when determining if they're gonna chase your project or not. The first thing is, can they actually do what you need? So very simply put, you know, you have to have a good scope, a budget, a schedule, and the supplier needs to be able to do that. So let's assume the supplier reads your solicitation and they say, you know what, we can do this work. So that's the first question they ask. If they can do the work, the next question they ask is, what are the odds that I can win? And how much effort is it gonna to take to respond? So even though the suppliers may, may be able to do your work, if your solicitation requires way too much information or requires them to spend too much time putting the proposal together, the likely, there's a higher likelihood that they're just gonna walk away, right? Or what they'll typically tell you is, we're just too busy. Right, that means that your RFP, you know, scared them away. So some things to improve some of these items. So how do we improve perceptions? John walked, walked through this during his last webinar, but the first thing we've done is to totally anonymize the supplier proposal responses. So rather than seeing company A, company B, we actually make it all anonymous so that the evaluators won't know who any suppliers are. So that is, you know, a harder grasp, I think, for clients than it is for vendors. A lot of vendors love this idea because it truly communicates that you're going to give everyone a fair opportunity to win. In many cases, sometimes evaluators ha have bias, whether it's intentional or not, but sometimes when we see you know, a big for a company name or a company we've heard of before, we may just automatically give that firm a higher score just because we've heard that name. They may not have great performance, but we give them a higher score. So anonymity can 
can improve supplier perceptions. And once again, we're not just looking at any suppliers. You want high quality suppliers. The next item is what questions should we ask the supplier to respond back to? It's very common as clients for us to get carried away in terms of items that we want suppliers to respond back to. But once again, think about this. The supplier has to make a business decision. It costs money. So the more items you require the vendor to respond back to, they're less likely to be interested in your RFP. And some of these items, it's difficult to really understand how you score it. A common requested item is org charts, right? How do you score org charts as a client? I mean, it's very difficult, if not impossible. I mean, most of the times we'll give them the same score because it's really just a pass fail. Do they have an org chart or don't they? So once again, what you're trying to do is look at what you're asking them, minimize what we're asking them so we can look more attractive to our suppliers. Differentiate three major items. What's their overall approach? What's the risk, challenges, and concerns? And what value or innovation do they bring? Those are the minimum three items that we've identified, regardless if you're doing a construction project, an IT project, you know, landscaping, janitorial, it doesn't matter. Those three items you can ask, and they can help you differentiate high quality suppliers from suppliers with no experience. The next item is how long should your proposal be? What we've learned is less is more. So, you know, if your proposal response is going to be greater than 20 pages, once again, that's less attractive to client or to your suppliers. It's less likely that your evaluators are going to read that. So the less material you can ask for, it can, it can actually assist you in having a more efficient procurement process where your evaluators will actually read the content of those proposals. So generally we recommend for whatever your items you're asking for, each item should be limited to two to three pages. And then in terms of project success, at the end of the day, when projects go really great, whether it's IT or construction, very rarely do we get up and say, you know, if it wasn't for the contract is what drove success. Generally, they say it's because of the people. The people drove success. And so in your RFP process, you really have to focus more on the people than the company name. And a good example is a lot of traditional approaches to interviews and presentations is you'll have the vendor supplier team come in as a group. You'll have one person that does most of the talking. Generally, they are dressed really well, they're attractive, they speak really well, but you rarely will see them ever again, right? And then the, the issue is you have the person here and that's the person that's gonna be running your project. That person never talks during the presentation and unfortunately, you might be stuck with that person. So what we've learned in in this approach is rather than doing a group presentation or a group interview, you should run individual interviews with each person separately from the rest of their supplier team. So kind of to finalize and summarize everything. So we have, you know, our written proposal, you have these interviews. The last item to talk about is this clarification period, which generally you'll have a negotiation period prior to award. What we're saying is parallel to negotiation. Now you want to ask all the details to validate and verify that the vendor has thought about everything related to your project. So in this phase, this is where you can ask all the details. You can get hundreds of pages of information, whatever is going to make you satisfied. The reason it's better to shift this at the end is once again, when a supplier is looking <clears throat> at all these items and your neighbor is asking for all these items up front and the supplier says, well, we could spend all this time putting it together and we don't have a chance at, at winning versus in this solicitation process, when they understand 
it's only going to be done at the end by the one supplier that's going to be awarded the contract. Once, once again, you'll look more attractive compared to your neighbors. They're more likely to say, yes, I don't mind doing that, knowing that you're going to issue the award if I mess something up or if I don't mess something up. So I think that's it. Yeah, that's a quick summary of the items that John talked about. John, is there anything you wanted to add on top of that? Not great. That was really good. I think provided a little bit a bit of high high level overview about what we've discussed. So once again, if you have we went a lot more in depth. If you have the time and you really wanted to to learn more about this approach and how it works, yeah, I highly encourage you just to go and check this out. The recording is uh, available on LinkedIn to just check out the, the whole process and how it works. But from there, I just wanted to just dive a little deeper into the, the anonymous concept, because as you mentioned, John, this is normally one of the hardest concepts for people to grasp and, 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 and understand. So I wanted to have a bit of a discussion about why this concept is important and what sort of benefits that brings to the, the, the RFP process from a vendor perspective and also from the client and from the evaluation process perspective. So maybe I'll add something for you or you can start now and then I can maybe if, if I have any comments to that, I can add later. Sure. So from a, a vendor perspective, the suppliers, you know, 99% love the idea. The 1% that may not like it are your incumbents, you know, the suppliers that have, have an ongoing contract or that have spent a lot of time building their relationship, personal relationship with you, you know, they're going to be uncomfortable, but every other supplier will love it. So you'll generally won't have any pushback from the supplier side. All of your pushback is going to be internally. And the main reasons are groups worry that if they don't see the names, that a very bad vendor, a vendor that's done bad work in the past, they might give them a high score in the proposal if they don't see the name. And, and that could potentially be true. You know, logically speaking, if they're a really bad supplier that's done very bad work, it would be difficult for them to write an anonymous proposal that makes them sound as good as the high performers that are competing. But I know that that doesn't make certain clients feel comfortable. So although this part of the process is anonymous, later parts in the process are not anonymous. So when you get to the interviews, you'll see their names. When you get to clarification, you'll have an opportunity to verify and go through all of the issues that you may have had with the supplier in the past. So there are other filters to catch them, but by setting this framework up front, it communicates to suppliers out there that you're gonna give everyone a fair chance. In the places where we've implemented this idea, you generally will see 70 to 100% increase in vendor participation. So we normally see the responses double. So if you typically have three to five responses, by having the anonymity, you'll start to see anywhere from five to 10 responses. So you'll get more competition because vendors are starting to think that they're gonna have a, a chance now at winning the work. Yeah, thanks, John. I also right. wanted to uh, add, questions? yeah, I will, we, I'll just add something on the, the anonymous part as well from the client perspective or from the evaluation team perspective. You know, having an impartial and unbiased evaluation process is something that everyone is looking for, something that we all are craving to achieve. And the, the thing that why I always mention that people that evaluate these proposals are human and we are as humans by nature are biased by our personal experience, but what we had in the past, a lot of things that can influence our decision. So by removing the names from the proposal, you will like greatly minimize the amount of bias, intentional or unintentional, during the RFP or the tender evaluation process. The other thing is just think about 
your debriefing for the unsuccessful vendors. How easy would that be now? And, and how much more defendable your position and your evaluation scores will be? Because it's very easy now to tell these vendors, the evaluators didn't even know who they are, that the proposal they are evaluating. So it's now very easy to defend your position and, and your scoring outcome when you have that anonymous submissions. The other also benefit that I see from vendors is the vendors with the big names, they rely heavily on who they are. They rely on their branding. They rely on their relationship with you. They rely on their name. So by removing that privilege from them, by removing the names, now these vendors are forced to really think about what they are going to put in their RFP response in order to truly differentiate themselves from everybody else, because the evaluation team will not know who you are. So if you can't differentiate yourself, but by the type of information you put in the submission, your name is not going to help you in that situation. So you will instantly get a much higher quality proposals from your vendors compared to the, the traditional RFP process. John, can I share my screen real quick again? Yes, please. Okay, let, tying along to what exactly what you just said. So can you see this slide? Yes. So here's a, a real example of, this was a, an IT project that we did in Canada, up in Canada. And uh, this was in our semi-remote location. And this, uh, it was a university. So it was to replace all the uh, system throughout the university. This university originally anticipated receiving three proposals. And there were two firms that were kind of the industry known favorites in, in this area. So we of course made everything anonymous here and you can see firm one won this project. So the two firms that were kind of the big firms in the industry in this anonymous process were firms six and seven. And you can see when everything was anonymized, the proposal score 20.4, 26.5, you know, they got some of the, the lowest or one of the worst and maybe second worst proposal score when it was anonymized. Once we revealed the names, this client said that they've never heard of firm one before ever. Firm one was a small business that was actually located in their area. This firm was awarded the contract, did a great job. I talked to this client about a year later after the project was complete and the client came back and said, in the traditional approach, we would have given firms six and seven a higher score just because of their names, because they were, we were told they were the best in the industry. We would have given firm one a lower score just because we've never heard of them. And if it wasn't for the anonymity, there's firm one would have never won. And once again, they were a small business. This was the most important, biggest job they were going to do that year versus firm six and seven. This was going to be a very tiny project for them, and they probably weren't going to assign their best people. So to the point you just said, the anonymity really makes it fairer for your small businesses, local businesses, when they have to compete with these larger firms. Thanks, John. Excellent. Great, great example, John. And I can't, I stopped counting how many times I've seen this situation happen when, when we apply that approach on, on projects. A lot of the time people are very resistant. Like when you tell them that this company wanted to propose and they say, ah, this company is so small, they can't handle it. I can't tell you how many times they have been shocked by how outstanding the performance from these vendors that they haven't heard of compared to what they normally believe will be like the best supplier, the best performance. Sure. So yeah, another thing just wanted to touch on quickly. So we mentioned that there are two documents or two sort of information that can really help you differentiate expertise, which is the risk and the value. I wanted to dive in a little bit deeper about why the risk and value are so critical for 
evaluation team, when we asked vendors to submit that information, why those two information specifically are so effective in differentiating between vendors. Can, can you just highlight some of the thoughts you have about these two documents, John? Yeah, so, and in fact, I was working yesterday with a supplier, helping them respond to a client's RFP. And, you know, many suppliers have, you know, canned response or responses that they have created over the last few years because every owner kind of asks the same questions. So a lot of times when they're going through these proposals and depending on the size of your project, if you have larger projects, like with the supplier I was working with yesterday, they had their own marketing team, business analysts that were responsible for writing the proposal. And then there was just one technical person that was giving them some input. So in most traditional RFPs, that's what occurs is vendors that are responding because they don't want to spend a lot of time and money, you know, if they don't feel like they're going to win the work. So they're going to do the least amount of time and effort in order to put in a proposal. And sometimes a lot of that is just copy and paste from the previous proposal that they just submitted. So in the risk assessment or challenges, that question forces the suppliers to really think about your project, think about potential risks, and think about ways to address or solve that risk. That's something that most clients have never asked for in an RFP. So vendors don't have canned responses. And even if they do, the business or sales team really won't know how to pick and choose which risks apply to your project or your scenario. So that question really forces now the proposer or supplier to have their experts, their actual you know, project managers, the technical experts doing the work now involved in responding to the proposal versus just the marketing people doing the cut and paste part. So that's why the, the risk and the value assessment can be significantly more valuable because it eliminates the traditional marketing materials that you normally get in a traditional response. Yeah, exactly. And that really goes hand in hand with the limited pages concept that we spoke about and John reiterated today. So when these vendors know that they have only two pages to submit for the risk information, they have to really think carefully about what sort of information they will decide to put in this limited pages that can make them different and differentiate, differentiate their capabilities and expertise from everybody else. I have seen it over and over and over when I spoke to vendors after we run this process and they tell me we had to really, once we saw the page limits, we had to throw out a lot of the garbage that we normally put in in our proposals because we only have so many pages to submit. So while these concepts like individually will really make sense, but the true power is really when, when you actually combine all of these concepts together. So the anonymous proposal along with the risk and value information along with the page limits, these are like sort of like the trifecta of how can we really get more superior quality of tenders proposals for our RFPs and for projects and services we run. You know, a challenge I've seen, John, with page limits, more and more clients are starting to put page limits in their requirements, which is great. The page limits that you're assigning just isn't realistic compared to the amount of information you're asking for. Mm -hmm. In the example, like the vendor I was working with yesterday, they were walking through and this, this owner had a five page limit for one of these items on experience and qualifications. But in their section on experience and qualifications, they asked for probably 15 to 20 pages of, of material that they wanted the suppliers to submit. So you can't just, you know, say, hey, we're going to take this amount of information and just tell the vendors to do it in two pages. 
that's going to frustrate them. That's going to irritate them. That's going to annoy them. They're going to walk away. So you have to look at your requirements and adjust everything you're asking the suppliers to do. So it's realistic and achievable within your, you know, two, three, four, five page limit, whatever you set. Exactly. And if you actually go back and watch that event that we, we ran like a couple of weeks ago, and you look at the examples that we walked you through, you really don't have, you don't need a lot of pages to prove your expertise. The, the risk is very concise. The, the, the management plan or the, the solution to that risk, only just one or two paragraphs maximum. You don't have like, you don't need to write like an essays to, to prove your capabilities and expertise. So it works pretty well with that types of environment. But if you're asking your traditional way of information that you're seeking in the page limits, it might not be as effective as, as this process. The other thing I've, I've also seen people or some organizations put like a word limit and guess what? Nobody checks that word limit, but it's just yeah. there in the RFP response. All right, that sounds good. So I'm just going to open up now for people to ask any questions that you have. So once again, if you go into the Q&A and just put your, your question or in the chat, it doesn't matter. If you want to come live to ask the question, we will prioritize those questions. Otherwise, we're going to respond to the rest of the questions. So we've got a good question from Ined. So Ined, I'm just going to allow your mic. And you can come and ask questions. Can you hear me now? Yes, we can. Good morning, everyone. Thank you very, very much for this opportunity to, to attend this session. Look, John, the question I have is about building that, trying to build that good perception and try to improve, I would say, in terms of when we conduct our procurement exercises. What what type of if I want to ask questions to the to the to the tender, like if I put if I presumably in each tender that I put live, I add another document of one pager and ask him ask similar questions to the tender or what things that I should be doing to improve the process to make their life easier and over, of course to make our life easier and also make our processes more let's say transparent let's say and effective or efficient. Yeah, so I, I think trying to ask that at a time of your tender being released might not be as effective because suppliers at that point, they're, they're going to be very cautious and they're not going to say anything that might, in their minds, hurt them from winning the work. So if you're going to try and gather you know, vendor perceptions, it should be totally outside of any tender. So I would ask just a, a very simple survey and you can survey, you know, just the last year of suppliers that responded, you know, to some of your RFPs or just do a general survey to suppliers, you know, in your area, but you can ask them, you know, just maybe five to 10 questions, you know, what, what on a one through 10 scale, you know, how do they, how do they perceive the fairness of your RFP process? Do they, do they believe your evaluation process are clear and transparent? Do you, do they believe you are more concerned with getting the best value or getting the lowest cost, right? Which one do they, how would they, you know, the best question to ask is how would they rate you overall as a client? And then how would they rate all the other clients they work for? That's probably the better question because in many times I run this, they'll say this owner is 30 or 40% satisfied with this owner and all the other owners they work for are 80%, right? That tells you there's a significant problem that with perception of your organization. So if you want more ideas, I mean, John and I can probably share a sample survey, but you know, it doesn't have to be long or complicated, five to 10 questions max, and you can get a better idea of how vendors perceive you as an organization. Exactly. And, and those surveys we normally, when we, when we partner with an organization that's looking for help to implement that approach is the question that we are like 
like ask them ask the question for them is how would you know that our approach would work or bring more or better results the answer is you won't know until you actually do that survey up front to understand how the perception of vendors about you as an organization about and about your process and then we can rerun that survey after a few iterations of the the the, the best value of procurement and you can see significant shift on the perception from the vendor community. We've got another question from Michael. Michael, do you want to come and ask the question? Yeah, sure. I was intrigued by the word limit or the page limit conversation. And I think in the past, I've worked for organizations where we probably just thought, well, okay, we'll, we'll do a little summary, but then put all the detail in the appendices. And how's that gauged from the buyer's perspective? Is that just considered more work, making the evaluation more complicated and complex? Does it help? You know, that, that good stuff, you know. And I'd just like to say hi to Roy Bird. I noticed this Roy's in the audience, and I know Roy <laughs> from way back, so long time no see, Roy. Hope you're okay. Good <laughs> day, <G'day>, Roy. <clears throat> Excellent. Yes, yeah, so, so I, I would say a lot of things as clients we do from the perception that it makes sense for us can actually be more work for your suppliers, and then it can be harder for your internal teams to assess all that. So I, I'm not a big fan of having executive summaries on top of their already approach that they're gonna submit. Working with the supplier yesterday, that was one of their questions. Well, what do we put here that we haven't put here and how do we summarize the 10 pages and now in the two pages that they want in this executive summary? And then how do you score that? So I like to keep things as simple as possible so the less different documents we can ask from the suppliers, the suppliers will like that. And then it's easier for us as evaluators when, it, when we receive that information to assess it. So it, it's more efficient for both parties. But the problem is sometimes, you know, we've just always asked for all this before that we just ask for it again in the next project. Sometimes we're just too busy to stop and think about and say, you know, why are we asking that? Another example yesterday from, from this supplier was one of the, this was a hospital project. And one of the requirements was that you need to provide five references of hospitals you've completed in the last five years. And this supplier is saying, well, it takes two years to build, you know, hospitals of this size. You know, we don't have a lot of references in just five years. Like we should have had at least a 10 year limit. Why did the client pick five years? They just made it up. My guess, you know, I've worked with a lot of clients. How do you come up with those numbers? Just someone makes it up internally. So I'm not a fan of, you know, minimum requirements or, or asking more and more from the suppliers. I'm, I'm more of a fan. If you can make things as simple, as easy as possible, you'll attract more suppliers. You'll get higher quality responses. And then you can still ask all that information during your contract negotiation. So you can still get it but you're going to get it from one vendor instead of making 10 of your vendors do it. So I'm not sure, Michael, if I answered your question or not. Well, I think you did based on the new model concept that you introduced around, you know, asking for the information later in the process. But a lot of tenders that I see don't adopt that that new principle and they want everything up front and like you like you alluded to before it, you know you might have 15 pages worth of information that needs to be condensed into five it, okay there probably could be some genuine cleanup that might have been required anyway because it could have been a cut and paste type answer but yeah. sometimes organizations just look at that limit and think oh sorry we'll just put it in the appendices they'll see it yeah. there if they're really interested yeah it's, and i think that's probably annoying for people who are reading these tenders Oh yeah, I suppose it's a bit of give and take on both on both sides from both parties, really. But I like the new concept. I like the new idea of you know asking for that information downstream once you've kind of done that initial evaluation. Sure, and we touched on actually on one of the 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 principles that we have observed over this research period is when you get that large proposals from vendors, how do we evaluate those proposals? Do your evaluation team read every page on every proposal? Like simply the answer is not. 
they generally skim through the pages because it's just not possible to like read in two or three weeks period, read and grasp over 300 pages of information. And sometimes they're full of technical information that they have no clue what they are. And they're not looking forward to evaluate proposals. No one is really waking up in the morning looking forward to evaluate proposals. Plus they have their own work to do. So the more complex you make the process for them, the less likely they are actually going to start reading every page. So keeping things concise and simple and short will give you a higher quality of the, the evaluation on the scores. And then all the rest of the information that typically won't really be a differentiator between expertise can be sought from that highest qualified vendor during the clarification period. Thanks, Michael. Ined, you've got another question you'd like to ask. You can unmute yourself, mate. Yeah. In the last session, John, you mentioned uh, around the scoring session that you don't recommend having a moderate or consensual score scoring. Like, and the, the main reason you said that many, one of the evaluation team member could be a director or manager who could sway the process. In a way, I agree to that. And I don't like to see a director sitting in an evaluation. I hate it, absolutely hate it because they don't add any value other than stalling the process. So sorry, I'm being blunt here. But that's a question I have is in relation to that that consensual scoring that you don't recommend. In a way that contradicts with most of property advisors' recommendation is that you you should have a consensual scoring because you someone say one, someone will say ten. How do they use the average? The average is not going to be an accurate measure here. So basically you need to understand why someone said one. One, well, someone said, for instance, 10, is if you have a scale of one to 10, for example. So you, you, you need to build that, let's say, to make the whole evaluation process, I believe it's, 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 it's been subjective, but in a way it's been driven that because you have few panel members assessing the tender, to, you try to make it more objective. Okay, try to smoothen, let's say if you have a curve or you have you did a lot of algebra, you see, then you try to smooth the whole the whole scoring process. Yes. So to make so to make to make to make to make things that make sense and to make sure, sure that people have an understanding of what this means. So in terms of why you selected this vendor. So that whole, that's what that's the questions around the consensual scoring and how we can manage the elements around property in this in that in that event. Yep. Thank you. Sure. John, I, I'm sure you love consensus meetings. You've attended a lot of them. I, I've attended one yesterday. And like if just people like a little bit honest and humble enough to admit what's going on in those consensus meetings, they they will they will not need to be convinced that this con consensus meeting add, adds absolutely no value. I, I I can't count how many times I've been in a consensus meeting and you ask an evaluator that gives it an eight versus someone gives a three and you ask the one, why did you give them an eight? I said, I'm not sure. I've must have been on drugs or something. I didn't mean to give them an eight. So it's just like adds really no value and 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 people to agree on one score at the end really defeated the, the point of having multiple views and multiple evaluators in, in the process. And the most commonly thing that we get of people saying that what if one evaluator misunderstood something? Like how likely does that happen? That someone completely misunderstood something 100% that the other person have picked it up. John, do you want to add some color to that? Yeah. So. And I think a lot of this circles back to how the traditional process is set. So in a traditional procurement, you could be asking for all this technical information where maybe one evaluator can only understand it. And so the consensus meeting is the one person then tries to convince everyone else what the right solution is. I agree though, John, I mean, most of these consensus meetings I've sat in have not been valuable. They take a lot of time. If you have a director or a boss, they influence everyone. If you don't, sometimes you'll have just someone that loves to talk 
and they'll just talk about everything. And I had a consensus meeting where after six hours, two evaluators basically said, you know what, I've had enough, change my scores to whatever you want, I'm leaving. You know, because they just didn't want to sit in that room anymore. Mm. You know, so at the end of the day, I've seen consensus scoring that has an impact less than 1% of the scores. So we go into it with the average score being an eight and we come out of it at an eight point, you know, eight now or nice. an eight, uh, eight point, you know, seven. So I agree there's not a lot of value. And I think it's the way it's set up traditionally is part of the problem. I think if we structure the solicitation so that it's the supplier's responsibility to convince us that they're a 10. It's not other evaluators trying to convince others. At the end of the day, if you have, let's say, a Toyota and a Honda, which is the best car? You know, half the people will say the Honda, half the will mm. say the Toyota. They might be the same, but some people love the Honda, some or an Apple phone versus a Google phone, right? There are some people, no matter what you say, love the Apple phone. Some people love the Google phone. So why have a consensus to try and convince one another that their opinion is more right than the other, right? That's why we have five evaluators so we can average everyone's different opinions. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm not a fan of consensus meetings. You know, if you have to have them, you know, you have to have them, but I don't ever see them adding a lot of value to any procurement I've been involved with. Yeah, and another thing also I wanted to highlight here is the fact that the rating scale from one to 10 is so wide. So the disparity between evaluators, you can very likely have situations where people giving an eight and, and, and some people are giving a two or three. But again, going circling back to the point that all of these concepts like really work together. So the rating scale that we're suggesting on the Y1510, a lot of the time, like you get like about 80 to 90% consistency between the scores. If you looked into the recent RFP you had and look at if you are using the one through 10, you would probably, in the majority of cases, you get between 20 to 30% consistency. So if you have 80% of your evaluators coming up with similar score that can also like reinforce your position and have more defendable when you're actually trying to justify your, your, your process or justify your decision or the evaluation outcome. So I'm just conscious of time. We've got only three minutes. So once again, I'd like to ask, like, uh, thank everybody for your time joining us today. It's been really great discussions, great questions. If you have any questions that you thought of after we finish, you can either send it by email to me or you can shoot me a message on LinkedIn and we can keep talking about this. So I will be also setting up an event for the, the next fortnight. If you would like to, like having that recurring invitation, you'd like to come every fortnight. Also, just let me know. Otherwise, I'll be shooting that on, on LinkedIn events so you can register for the next sessions if you like. Thanks again for everyone attended. And yeah, have a great day. And yeah, keep lifting up your procurement capabilities. I just got one comment here from Roy. Roy saying consensus scoring can result in evaluators not being sufficiently diligent prior to the consensus meeting because they know they can change the scores later. Alternatively, sometimes an evaluator realizes their score is not appropriate based on someone else's insights. Absolutely. Yeah. Very great comment, Rob. Yeah, we could do a whole session in the future on consensus scoring, John. Yes, yes. I know you love them. I know you love them. All right. Thanks, everybody, for your time, and you have a great day. Thank you. See ya.